0: Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I am thrilled today to be joined by Kelly Bonner, expert company culture strategist, licensed therapist, and award-winning podcaster. She's also the founder of Burn Bright Consulting, which revolutionizes diversity, equity, and inclusion training that ultimately leads to happier workplace environments. Kelly, welcome to Motivational Mondays.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh, we're so excited to have you as well, because the work you do, is really important. In fact, before we begin, you know, your intro, I had to sort of um, summarize it, but to give a fuller scope of your work too, you were also um, on the uh, gender policy committee for the White House, yes. uh, the International Women's Economic Security Council, yeah. and you were handpicked by the Biden administration to develop a national framework for workplace safety and harassment. Yes. So yes. you clearly That's know awesome. your stuff, apparently.
1: So they tell me, I mean... <laughs> there's there's still more to learn, but mm-hmm. so they tell me, I've done yeah. some decent stuff
0: you really, really have. yes. And I love that you added, you know, leadership, one of the big lessons of leadership is that there's always more to learn. So thank you for actually throwing that in there. Um but first, you know, let's talk about one of your critical areas of expertise, which is burnout. And so I know there's a difference between, like, hey, I'm having a few bad days at work and actually being burned out. So maybe you can help me uh, help us assess with our audience. What is the difference between just a few bad days and, you know what, I'm burned out? Like, are there some distinct differences?
1: Absolutely. And I think everyone universally has had a few bad days at work, and that might be putting it mildly, as some of us have had a few bad years at work. <laughs> but it's really important to distinguish the term, you know, burnout from other terms which have come out, which is like languishing, which is like kind of like, I'm just not doing great. And really, burnout is this kind of emotional and physical exhaustion that happens, that then begins to impact a lot of areas in your life, not just work, but of course, your performance. So whereas you can have a couple bad days where you're just not feeling it, and you're like, I just I can't wait for the weekend. That's very different than the kind of exhaustion that just sits in you, right, that you're not able to think clearly, you're not making deadlines, you feel disconnected from your coworkers, you feel disconnected from friends and family, you might isolate, right, symptoms that become more and more pervasive in your life, versus a couple bad days. So if you find yourself having Poor performance due to the fact that you just cannot think clearly, you feel kind of like mental fog, you're disconnected emotionally from the work and others. And then there's just this deep dissatisfaction with your job with management with your organization. That's more when we start talking about burnout versus I've had a couple bad days.
0: Mm, Yes. And it's funny about that too, because there's also now the correlation between this phenomenon and quiet quitting as they're calling it, right? Which is, um, I had a guest on recently and he said, you know, quiet quitting is burnout. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's just been rebranded on TikTok apparently, but he was like, this is not a new phenomenon. It's like, it's exactly what you described. It's like this sort of like, okay, this is not really conducive to maybe who you are anymore as a person or the work doesn't feel fulfilling. But what's interesting about your work too is you also talk about we violate our own values. Yes. And that also creates burnout. So in a way, we are assisting ourselves in our own demise. So share a little bit about how we are contributing to our own burnout.
1: Yeah. One of the things I think is really important to discuss is about, I always say burnout is a betrayal. And it is a betrayal of really two things. It's a betrayal by the systems of work and the way that we work, but it's also a self betrayal. It's the ways that we do not live up to our values. I always tell people a a quick way to know if you're going to be burned out is the gap between what matters to you and how you're behaving in everyday life. Mm. So what is your values versus how you're living? And so if you're somebody who values, you know, let's say I value partnership or I value my friends, but you work late all the time and never see your friends never spend time with your partner, that space and that gap between saying that this is what I value and then my behavior saying otherwise is where burnout exists, right? And so oftentimes when people reflect back on their burnout stories, they can start to tell like, this is where I stopped doing the thing that mattered to me. Or this is where I said, I'm a compassionate person, but now I started cussing out everybody I could see in my path. Like it's that gap in between that accelerates burnout. And that's Mm. where I believe that it is essentially like a betrayal of ourselves by not being true to what matters to us.
0: Mm. Yes. uh, I've shared a few times on this podcast, something that relates to that, where when I was a young freelancer, and um, I mean, I like to say I'm still young, but that's a whole other conversation. But when I was a freelancer as a copywriter, I was... um, you know, broke in New York City trying to figure it out and trying to get a paycheck. And then this amazing opportunity came for Philip Morris. And it was for cigarettes. And I'm not disparaging people who smoke, but for me that just was not a an aligned job for what I want to do. And um I had to really think about that for a while because I was like, wow, that's more money than I've ever seen at this point that they're going to give me for this. But if I go to work every day and I'm not content or I feel like I'm not align with my values. I knew this would end in disaster. And so, you know, I ate ramen for a few more months and said no. But I think it's one of those choices that you're discussing there where you have to look at things sometimes before you enter a situation and assess it. And that way, maybe you can save yourself some anguish too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great thought. And I think that's ultimately what I tell people to do. Like the road to recovery from burnout, part of that is is going forward what matters to you and making sure that that is infused in your workday if possible, right? Start focusing on that. But then from your perspective and what your story says, start evaluating the jobs we take, the interviews we go on by seeing, is this even a job that aligns with my values? Start asking those questions in your interview that might be, if something's really important to you, like creativity, then you need to be on your interview. Your questions should all be about like, how do you all innovate or what's your creative process? Those kinds of things need to be at the forefront of your mind to make sure that you don't burn out and you take the job that's truly in alignment with who you are.
0: Absolutely, and you also raise a great point there too that a a recruiter shared with me when I told her that story Uh, when I'd go to the interview and I was like, I'm not sure. And she said, well, that's fine because don't forget when you go to a job interview, you are also interviewing the job. You are also trying to make sure if, if they align with you. So it's always been this sort of one-sided thing where we go in and we're so worried about, I hope I impress them. I hope they like me. It's like, well, wait a minute. Do I want to be with them? Are they, (laughs) are they aligned with me? So I think that's an excellent point. And I do want to ask you, this is something that you I mean, in your work, I guess this is not necessarily something you cover, but I think it would spill into it just by osmosis. The world we live in today, America specifically, increasingly divisive, social unrest, how does that play into burnout? Does that, in your work, do you see where that's also a almost like a compiling, contributing factor to what people are also experiencing in the workplace?
1: Yes. Well, just like we know that people are predisposed for like hypertension or heart disease or diabetes, medical conditions, right? Cancer. We've done the research. It's the same thing with burnout, which is this exhaustion that there are people who already come to the table exhausted, mm. right? They come to the table exhausted because they have historical inequity, whether it's along gender, race sexual orientation, gender identity, the list goes on, religious, disability, all these things are already factors that predispose people to showing up tired. And so you add to the fact that like the social unrest continues to be everywhere in the news or there's some new tragedy. If you go looking for it, there's something horrible happening at every minute of the day. And there's no way that doesn't have an impact. So for folks that already came in exhausted, then you see this being talked about your company. Now, you know, 2020 was this year where everybody decided they wanted to solve the problem of racism like it was a (laughs) brand new problem. And these kinds of things become exhausting for folks. Who have to deal with it in the workplace. And there is just the natural part of there being traumatic stress, right? That there's just trauma.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it's it's funny because recently I had to, um, it's in my line of work, obviously interviewing people and being a media journalist as well outside of this uh, podcast. I have to stay informed, but I have realized that I'm so impacted by keeping the news on 24 hours in the background it was affecting me negatively. My partner, Joe was like, I need you to turn off that (laughs) like immediately. And I'm like, no, but I have to know. He's like, well, just do like a headline news thing once in a week and be done because it really began, it it began to impact me negatively. And and then add to that, just the idea of there's you know a war going on in the world and, and you're inundated with that. Not even in my own, my own community, there's people across the world I've never met who are going through tragedy. And it just feels like Helplessness. So, what I want to just suggest to people is uh, to your point, maybe we just sort of ingest less of it if we can.
1: Oh, yes. That is definitely, I tell people. First of all, traumatic stress is at an all-time high because we are consuming trauma nonstop. We have put ourselves in the presence of pain, even if it's a global way, right? Even if it's a world away and we will never meet these folks, we're reading about it because, you know, you're a good person. You want to know and you care, but there are limits to that. And it actually has an impact on your ability to be healthy if you are consuming 24 hours. So Mm. having limited screen time is one of the first things I tell people. If there's some incident, don't rewatch it over and over again. There's no science that tells you you'll become a better human or you'll have some new solution. It just shows you that you're actually re-traumatizing yourself. So that's one of the first things. And particularly if nothing else, before bed, do not consume any kind of content like that. At least two hours before bed. Put wow. you know some cat videos on. Don't don't do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Don't
0: do it. <laughs> Cooking videos or something. Anything. No, it's so true. And I will also add to that too. Be careful of. Um, and I've been meaning to write a piece on this from my own experience. I want people to be also very careful of binge watching scripted shows that are violent shows. I, I went through uh, just briefly. I'll talk about the show uh, Sons of Anarchy, which I used to love, but I hadn't really seen it so. Um, I just heard about it. So I said, I'm going to watch it. And I got so addicted to it that, you know, before I knew what the sun was coming up and I hadn't slept and I'll be at work thinking about, Oh my gosh, I can't believe Jenna did that too. (laughs) I mean, I just, and I was like traumatized by like the violence of it. And I think you're not supposed to really consume that much content in that one sitting. It's like a meal, right? It's like, it was just too much. So Yes, avoid all that. And if you can eliminate some of that from your lives, well, you know, Kelly and I definitely recommend it. So also in your work, you've noted that the increase in inclusion and uh, employee burnout is linked to maybe the lack of participation and the lack of inclusion at the company. So then obviously we're saying the correlation there is what people are more likely to be burned out if they don't feel represented and utilized by their corporation.
1: Absolutely. That's a very fair <laughs> line to, to draw, that there is a correlation between representation and burnout. And again, people coming to the table exhausted. And then we have this other phenomenon called onlyness, where people are coming into spaces where they are the only one of enter a demographic mm. category that's critically underrepresented. So they are the only person who's trans. They are the only person who's black whatever that is, they're the only person who's Native American. And so there's this burden put upon them to kind of feel like I am got to be great for all the people who came before me, who are of the same demographic as me. And then conversely, when an organization isn't doing its work and inclusion, they tend to over or double burden those folks. So it's like, oh, trans rights discussion. Let's go to the one trans person and ask them their opinion on what we saw in the news, right? Oh, there's a Native person. Oh, it's Native American Heritage Month. Let's go burden them with being on the planning committee or diversity. (laughs) Black person, you look like you want to be on diversity because we think diversity equals Black uh, these days. Right. And so how could that not? It's just like it's you're laughing because you get it. How could that not be a quick path to burnout Mm. and resentment when a company is not fully invested in a whole kind of holistic platform of inclusion?
0: Yes. It's such a great point, because I remember for me being in advertising and seeing maybe paying more attention to the, the commercial marketing side of that. For a long time. And you know, recent examples were like the abysmal commercial for like Diet Coke or something with one of the Jenner girls. <laughs> you know, whereas, you know, there's like the there's like the George Floyd riots going on and there's like a knee in the neck and people are dying. But she says, Here, have a Diet Coke and it's all gonna go away. And we're like, who thought of this? Clearly there was if there was a black person in that boardroom, it was the wrong black person. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. But it was disastrous as a campaign. And um, I think you're right. Brands or organizations have to do the real, real work. So in that same breath, do you find that they are really completely oblivious when you go into organizations and they think they can just check a box and go, okay, I'm going to order three Chinese, three black, two white, one trans, and they've done all the work. (laughs) I mean, is it that, are they that oblivious in some cases?
1: It depends. You know, I go back and forth on this because I've been on both sides of this and I am at all at the bottom of me. I am an advocate for the worker, but I have ran into a lot of leaders. I I will say as. To give some credit, we haven't always done a great job of languaging what to do. Mm. So we we say, okay, it's a problem. Yes, I can't pick a pick a combo. I'm gonna take a disabled person, a black person, and a trans. Oh, if I get all in one, does that mean I, you know, bingo? Like <laughs> Bonus there are people, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, there are
1: people who do act that way. Let's be clear, right? But there's a lot of people who are avoidant, one because it's a privilege. But two, they're avoided because they're like, I genuinely don't know what to do. Mm. And we've all been in a situation in our lives where we're like, I'm so overwhelmed. I know this is not the answer. I know drinking a cocktail to solve my problems isn't the answer, but I'm sad and I I don't know what else alternative there is. Right. And so I feel like if we we need to start really being strategic about what companies can do that are practical, that are tangible, how you can start inclusion. How about one tip? Do you have meeting ground rules? Do you have ground rules in your meeting where people understand what the rules are engaged? In? We don't talk over people. We do, we let other people have a chance to talk. We, do you have different tools in a hybrid environment? Do you use polling versus saying, Hey, or you have to answer the question and you're an introvert. And you're like, I don't want to. And by the way, as a, let's say I'm a black man, I don't feel comfortable answering this question in front of my peers. But mm. well, what about polling? Again, these are like tangible, small things that you can tell a company and then you can start to judge them. Like here, we've given you 10 things that anybody could do. If you're not doing them, then now we can rightfully say, You do not care about inclusion. Mm. You are not doing the work of diversifying your workforce, right? Right. But I think we haven't always done that. And people will always take the easy way out. In the absence of an easy answer or something tangible, they're going to go back to what they know best, which is checking the box or turning a blind eye and pretending they didn't hear that.
0: Mm. Yes, that's very, very easy to do. Uh, It's minimal work involved. And you can just sort sort of walk away and go, yeah, well, we've done something. But you're right. You've done nothing if it's not effective. And I think you raise a great point, too, about the lines being blurred, people not really knowing what to do. Very often, I'll be engaged in a conversation or a debate, if you will, on social media. And it's about a Black issue or something to do with people of color in general. And a white person, well-meaning, like really well-intended, will attempt to enter the conversation. And they may say something misguided. And it's, again, unintentional. Um, They're trying to engage. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're attacked in this thread. So I find myself often jumping in going, listen, we cannot on one hand argue that white people are not understanding or listening. And then when they try to enter the conversation, we jump and attack them and tell them to mind their business is not about you. And that's what I see a lot happening. And it's sort of a there's an impasse there that I think makes it impossible to really have full dialogue if that's the method in which we communicate.
1: Yeah, there has to be a level of accountability. And I think we forget what accountability means. Yes, we need folks to take accountability. That's not necessarily a punishment or that doesn't mean screaming at someone or making someone feel bad. Accountability means educating people to know, like, what are the rules of engagement? Understanding as a white person, not every space is for you and for your voice. And that's okay. But here's where you go. If and when you want to get information, mm. if and when you want to have this conversation, these are the spaces for you. Are there going to be people who go, I don't care. I want to let you know what mm. I feel. Sure. And then those people get piled on and we just say, well, that's natural consequences. But I do feel like we need to read accountability. And part of accountability is knowledge. It's like bringing people up to an understanding of what Their roles are, they know about privilege. We say these words, but we don't really unpack them. Mm -hmm. And then they become explosive, right? It's like, well, don't tell me about my privilege. Like everybody's got privilege. Calm down. It's about, it's not, you don't have to apologize for your privilege. You need to acknowledge it. And when you acknowledge it, there's power in being like, okay, what can I do to bring someone else along or to make sure somebody else experiences what I have gotten without ever thinking about it. You know, it's recontextualizing these conversations and helping, you know, and white folks too need to learn like, eh, it's, you know, pass the mic to somebody else. It's not, you don't always have to give your opinion. You don't have to talk about how sad you are. It's okay. Like you can do some internal work that doesn't need to be externalized on your friends on, you know, social media, whatever that, Mm -hmm. that is.
0: Yeah, it's a balance. I think that's great. It's a balance because I think maybe we can be better at expressing that too in those moments like versus how I see it handled on social media where they just yes. pounce. I love what you just said. You know what? Listen, you need to understand that maybe every space is not for your voice because you cannot have possibly had the experience. So therefore, we appreciate your you know interest, but check this out over here and maybe understand more where we're coming from without throwing your hat in the ring, conversely, right? So I mean, I think there's a way versus, you know, how it's handled uh, on social media. Now in your work, you also do a lot with workplace violence prevention as well. And I know you've done that for quite a few organizations, uh, including uh, US military, Library of Congress, National Academy of Sciences, NATO as well. So is that like, you really start to implement maybe what employee psychological wellness, programs and assessments to see if everyone's okay before things escalate to those sorts of situations?
1: Yeah. Well, the goal of workplace violence, really, I do think the antidote, which doesn't, shouldn't be shocking to anyone to workplace violence is workplace wellness, right? And that's where the, my interest in burnout came in as I realized, well, what makes people not well at work that makes them prone to more violent acts against each other or just consumed with, you know, I'm, I want to be upset at an organization. What are those things? And so a lot of it is talking about, you know, what are those thresholds? When? What are some concerning warning signs of people's behavior? What should people internally for themselves be like, I'm not okay, I need to take some time? What does that look like? And also opening people's eyes up to what workplace violence is, because a lot of people think, oh, you know, it's somebody coming into a place and doing some Extreme act of violence, bringing a gun to the workplace and harming people. And yes, that is definitely workplace violence, but so is bullying. So is consistently marginalizing people and being a jerk in your workplace is a form of violence. And often that is that is everywhere at a lot of organizations and it's pervasive and it's what actually leads to these other steps. Mm. So a lot of the work that I've done when I've worked with people and when I've you know been a part of different organizations is looking at what are those precursors? What are the lowest level of behavior that you can do? Because that's where you can make a change. You may not be able to stop a person. By that point, it's gotten so bad and people are getting hurt but at that lower level with the bullying, with the way that the incivil and incivility and the way that we talk to each other, the way people are managing, can we change that so that people don't feel so bad that their behavior escalates to these extreme acts of violence?
0: Yeah, because we definitely see cases or we've seen cases and there's certain, for some reason, companies where it seems more pervasive than Than other areas, but like the post office, for example, it's a fascinating thing to me that that's so pervasive that it actually is like, sort of like a, I don't want to call it a joke, but there's like a phrase of going postal, right? Going postal is an actual thing. And so it makes you wonder, well, why is that particular area or that company, like, are they doing the work to understand what that is? And so hopefully they are, but I just thought that's an interesting thing. That's like an organization where they've almost branded the term because of workplace violence, sort of terrifying.
1: And related to like work conditions, like it's not that, you know, the post office necessarily just attracts people who want to shoot people. I don't think that's the case. And that's, that's what the science piece is. It's like, what is going on in your organization? What are some policies? What is going on that's putting all this external pressure on someone combined with what may be like predisposition by other factors unrelated to work. But what's going on operationally that may push someone to feel like they are at an edge? Mm-hmm. And long before people shoot somebody or get to that level, the organization is just hostile. There's no, there's no civility. People are probably really horrible to each other day in and day out. And there's a lot of like markers long before it has to get to that level.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. That are often overlooked and just no one pays attention to them. Now, so. When you address those things, I guess it will become this sort of behavioral modification in a way, um, trying to help people assess behaviors and mod- modify them, nip things in the bud before they get out of control. In that same token, I guess, in that same space, you do work with prisons as well. And something I want to share is that I have a really dear friend who's a yoga instructor, um, Onika Mays. I will call out Onika. Hey, Onika. And she's an amazing yoga instructor who began a prison yoga program that was for long-term sentence inmates. You know, they have, they were going to be in there for a while. So they have, there's a sense of helplessness there and, and hopelessness, right? They have no reason to be on their best behavior. They're in prison for life. That creates a really def, uh, difficult dynamic, of unhappiness. And yoga, her yoga program, and I believe she even went into Rikers. So she was like really serious. It was transformative for the inmates, made a big difference in just how they cope and interact with each other. So I know that you've been involved in a behavior modification program in New York State men's prisons as well. And that reduced some violence. So please share a little bit about the work you've done in that area.
1: Yeah, so I, I never get to talk about my time uh, working in the prison system, so I'm always happy to do that. I loved that program, I, mostly because it was the people that I worked with, and I, I think to the point of what you said, I, Anika, I think is her name, mm, is Anika, great. Yes. Shout out for her. Um, is that that connecting people to some kind of purpose is life changing? And when you're doing long times in prison, the program that I ran it was created to take. The folks that had kind of failed out of behavioral modification school, so to speak. So they were, you know, they went to general population, didn't do great there. There are many reasons why that happens mm-hmm. that people don't know about, but then went to these behavioral modification programs, supposedly failed out of those. And they're like, we don't know what left to do. Here's like a toothpick and two dollars. <laughs> and here they come, right. uh, heal them, Kelly, you know, mm-hmm. tap their head and say, I've, I've, I've taken, I've cured them. But what it turned into, despite the fact that it was set up not necessarily as well as it could be, was it gave an opportunity to bring a level of humanity back to a place that is very inhumane, like Mm -hmm. just in general. Right. Yeah, Yeah. And does not encourage anyone to be their best. There's nothing about the system of prison that rewards good behavior. Technically, like it's a place where people are dehumanized. And so to bring that in, I mean, behavioral modification really just became about let's have conversations. Let's have an alternative To What has happened before and let's give particular men of color which predominantly were in the program. There were some that were not let's give you back your dignity and for so many people that is something that is absent of their life and then just further taken away when they're in prison. And so to be able to do that work we saw amazing changes in behavior by just giving people the skills of conversation the skills of emotion regulation and management and then creativity. Like, I really am a huge, which I think yoga does all of that, which is why it's so powerful probably in that arena, is it allows people to regulate their emotions. It gives them skills and tools, but also gives them the ability to be creative and know something more about themselves they didn't before. And so these men were incredible to work with. Like, honestly, I tell people, I really, it still is my favorite population I've ever worked with. I found it extremely rewarding working with them. The system, uh, Another conversation for another right. time, yeah, yeah. but them really rewarding. And a lot of benefits happened in the short term working
0: in that program. Excellent words of advice. Kelly Bonner, thank you so much. Expert company, culture strategist, and licensed therapist. It's been an absolute joy having you here today with me on Motivational Mondays. It's been wonderful. Thanks.